Two weeks ago, a middle school girl in Crandall committed suicide. A few weeks before this, a well-known pastor in California committed suicide. And suicide has now moved past cancer in the leading cause of death in America, which means you are more likely to die by your own hand than by cancer. And this morning, not all of us are okay. The, the tendency is to think like, oh man, I'm, I'm going to church, everybody's doing really well, but maybe they're not, maybe you're not. Suicidal thoughts have probably crept into all of our minds, if we're honest, no matter if we thought about it any longer than that, no matter if we acted on it or did not act on it at all. So I'd like to just address the topic briefly before we get into Acts 9. Life is absolutely full of suffering, and statistics show that suicide is almost always occurring uh, in response to suffering or anticipated suffering. It could be physical. It could be mental, it could be emotional or spiritual, it could be depression, it could be financial trouble, a relationship lost, a form of protest, sexual gender confusion, religious ritual, escape from punishment, escape from pain. And it almost always occurs in response to suffering. So we have to know something. Suffering is a normal part of this fallen world. If you feel anxious, if you feel depressed, if you feel deeply confused and hurt and wounded, please never be surprised by this. This is what the fallen world has for us. If it's dark, it's normal. It is not the way God created it to be. It is not what God has intended for us in giving us life. But in his wisdom, he has allowed it. And we have to recognize and know this. Otherwise, the darkness will overcome us and will lead us to sin. And that's what suicide is. Suicide is sin. It's a bold statement that we are our own Lord. It assumes that the decision of life is in our hands in the first place. It communicates that there is no answer to despair and no comfort in affliction. The exact opposite of what the gospel promises. The gospel acknowledges the emptiness and brokenness of the world and offers hope and newness and abundant life and light in darkness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So then what the gospel does is it frees us from the overwhelming weight of us. And it frees us up to live our lives for what we were meant to live for, which is not us. Paul, uh, who was afflicted in every way imaginable, uh, was beaten almost to death multiple times, was robbed and stoned. Uh, he acknowledges that this life is hard in the way he says it in Philippians 1. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But then he says one word that changes it all. But. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So I will remain. Paul's life was full of suffering and anguish, and he acknowledged that it made him want to go and be with Jesus. But why didn't he? If this life is all about us, it's too much of a burden to bear the weight of. But if it's not about us, if we take the weight off of us by us taking off the lordship of our own lives and our lives become about God and his glory and those who might know him, then every bit of suffering that comes will never be too much because it always comes with a purpose. Paul later goes on to say, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, though suffering and darkness and pain and wounds abound plenty, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. If you think about anything that we encounter, any suffering that we encounter, it's going to be light and momentary in the scope of eternity. It is light and momentary and is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If we are in Christ, our Father holds our life in his hands. 
and he's preparing for us a weight of glory. So whatever darkness comes, we are held. Whatever darkness comes, we are held by a sovereign God who loves us. And he's allowing whatever it is to come to us for his glory and for our good. Of course it's hard. Of course life is hard. We can't be surprised by that. But it's doing something in us and for us. Everything that comes to us, if we are in Jesus, depression or otherwise, is for our good and for his glory. Our hope does not lie in getting past this suffering here on earth because we might deal with it forever on earth. Our hope lies in the fact that we have a living hope, a resurrected hope, a true and everlasting hope in Jesus Christ. And because of him, our pain, our suffering, everything that is hard about this world and dark is not everlasting. And so every day, sometimes every hour, sometimes by the minute, we have to cast ourselves to Calvary, to the good news of the gospel, and we have to fight and strive to remember and rest in the gospel that our faith will not fail as long as God sustains it. And he does, and he will. So if you're here this morning and you have considered suicide or you are considering suicide or if you know someone who might be, Jesus wants to help. And we want to help. If you would, uh, you don't have to do it right now, but would you reach out? Would you let me know or any of the elders know? We want to help you. With that in mind, uh, let's pray. Father, we know that the present age is one that is dominated by darkness. And we see it every day. If it's not the news, it's in our family. If it's not out there, then it's within us. We see this darkness, God. We are a part of this darkness. Would you shine your light into it? Would you let your beacon of hope resonate through this land so that as people do have questions, so that as people do have struggles and people do have overwhelming times of pain and suffering and they don't know what to do next, God, would you give them hope? Would you point them to something greater in yourself? And God, if, the, if there is any suffering in this room, would you allow us, would you give us the strength to bring it to light? God, please help us. And for those affected, in Crandall and in California and for the stories we don't know about, God. For those affected, would you be with them? Would you give an answer to affliction? Would you give comfort in suffering? And Father, we trust that you are allowing this darkness for a reason. Please help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 is where we will be. But I wanted to show you uh, one text in Jeremiah before we do get there. Stand by the roads. And look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. When it comes to your walk with God, how would you describe it? Would you say that you find it restful? 
There are thousands of paths leading to thousands of different treacherous ends, and there's one way that leads to rest for our souls. Do you find yourself there this morning? How do you know? How do you know if you belong to this road, this path, this way? With this in mind, let's read Acts 9, 1 through 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus, Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called the Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose? to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we, God... We all know the depths of darkness that we live in currently. Would you shine your light to us by your word? We are in this room. We are believers. We are unbelievers. We are those who 
believe and yet not fully believe. So God, would you change us? Would you change and and do surgery on our hearts by your word so that we may see a glimpse and a picture of you and your gospel? God, help us this morning to behold Jesus. And so by that, Father, if there is anything that I say that goes against your word, that goes against proper thinking and theology of you, would you remove it from all of our ears? Would you help us to never remember it? And would you only have what you have for us, God? Would you let us only see that? And if there is anything that any of us think, or any distraction, any sort of wrong thinking about you, God, remove it from our minds. Help us now, God, to sit and be still and to know that you are God and know you as God. God, help us to see you. Be a light. Give us hope by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to belong to the way? where we find rest for our souls. Three questions come from our text this morning that we must ask ourselves. Because what we see um, is a mix of one man being on the wrong way, and then he ends up being on the right way, and then one man being on the right way. And so we have three questions that we must ask of ourselves to see. Uh, And I have them up here, actually, because they're a little longer. Do you know the shepherd's voice? Will you count the cost to follow and still go? And do you believe? Do you know the shepherd's voice? Will you count the cost to follow and still go? And do you believe? Our answer to these will show us our true rest or our lack thereof. So let's answer them together. Let's look at the first one. Do you know the shepherd's voice? Look back to verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, uh, still, meaning he's been doing this. Uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, the stoning of Stephen, uh, Paul was, Paul, I'm going to get his name mixed up a lot probably because he, he ends up being Paul. Um, but Saul is holding the coats of those who are throwing stones at Stephen uh, completely uh, for it. And he is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Why though? Be thinking about that. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Uh, It's important to know people don't travel at night. It was dangerous. It's hard to see clearly. Uh, And this is the middle of the day in the Middle East. The temperature here in August of 2015 was 126 degrees, and the feels-like temp was 167 degrees. I don't even, I mean, that's just, your skin is burning at that point. But there's no mistaking that the sun was bright and shining where they were, and yet, light shone. I actually have an artist's rendition of what that would have looked like uh, so that you can see The guy at the bottom laying there, (laughs) looking a little distraught, Uh, that's Saul. Reasonably so. I mean, middle of the day, something shines like that. You're going to be distraught for a few days. And then everyone else, the chaos, because like they said, they hear the voice, they don't see anyone. Uh, It's a little chaotic, but it's a wonderful picture. And what darkness cannot be overcome if the sun can be outshone by our God? No wonder Saul responds the way he does in verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? That's not the Lord as in my Lord and Savior. It was just a proper, uh, it was pretty much just him saying, sir. Who are you, sir? Saul doesn't know the voice of the shepherd. 
but he learns quickly who it is. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Whew. Man, you will be told what you are to do. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, reasonably so, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank, to which we can all say, yeah, that happened to me. I'm pretty much going to act the same way. I'm not going to eat or uh, drink anything. But why? Why would Saul respond in such a way? Keep that in mind. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Not the same Ananias who was uh, killed in chapter 6. Just wanted to point that out. Uh, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Two instances of Jesus speaking and two completely different responses. Who are you, Lord? And here I am, Lord. What's happening for Ananias here? He knows his father's voice. This is what Jesus was saying to the people in, as he stands in Solomon's portico and Solomon's porch in John 10 when he says this, The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. After this, uh, the Jews come up because they're confused, and so they just ask Jesus, like, hey, listen, man, you've been giving us all these parables about sheep and stuff like that. We get some of it, um, but just explain it to us like we're five. Can you, like, will you just tell us, are you the Messiah? And Jesus responds in the next part of John 10, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you know the voice of your father? There are countless wolves in sheep clothing. People claiming to know and love Jesus when they do not know him, and they will cause harm to the church, to you. And there are countless amounts of false shepherds, false prophets, false teachers, people speaking and preaching and teaching and writing books in the name of God, and either they don't know or they know, but what they say sounds really good at first, but it's like waterless rain clouds. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This human cunning of craftiness and deceitfulness is an epidemic, and it can leak in from anywhere, from me, from an elder, from a leader, from your friend, from your parents, from your children, and even from you. We must know his voice over every other voice. Otherwise, we shipwreck our life and faith into oblivion. But the good news is that we can know it. A few years ago, we began a time together as a church, as a body, uh, called the First Fifteen. And we lost it during a time of uh, our sinful mess that we went through about two years ago now. So I'd like for us to redeem it. For the sake of hearing and knowing our Father's voice. That whatever wind 
and wave of doctrine comes, we have Jesus as a sure and steadfast anchor. And so whatever wind and wave of doctrine does come, we can hear it. And if it's wrong, we know because we know the Father's voice and that's not it. Or we can know when someone is speaking Jesus to us. We know because we see it in his word. So I'm asking if you would commit to spend the first 15 minutes of every day before you check your phone, before you check your email, before you check Facebook or Instagram, before anything else, and maybe that means waking up 15 minutes earlier than you currently wake up, but spending 15 minutes in God's Word. We have uh, reading, <clears throat> reading plans as you walk out uh, on that table in the hallway. Um, please grab one and, and use that to your benefit. Uh, but whatever you need to do, whether it's listen, watch a video, read, uh, drink a whole bunch of coffee first, whatever it is, the first 15 minutes, spend it in God's Word. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. There is rest in the way of knowing the shepherd's voice. Do you know it? Second question. Will you count the cost to follow and still go? Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and yes, having people murdered. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name to have them murdered too. He's just saying, God, that's kind of scary. Like, you don't know what this guy has been doing around here, apparently, clearly. So let me just tell you, God, because if you knew, then you wouldn't be sending me. I'm supposed to live my best life now. That dude puts people like me to death. Come on, please, please don't do this. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. <laughs> I just love that. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God never promises safety. God never promises comfortability ease, happiness, and maybe the fact that God said that uh, Saul was going to suffer, like maybe that helped Ananias. He's like, okay, I'll go now since he said he's going to suffer. But he still never promises to Ananias that he won't be killed himself. You and I won't have all the details. And we won't have any promise that everything is going to go well for us here. We're only promised that we will suffer that we get Jesus and that one day we will never suffer again. But that's not here yet. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes as though something strange were happening. If we know the Father's voice, we know two things, that we will suffer and that there's a surpassing worth over everything in knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why Ananias does what he does next in verse 17. So Ananias departed, knowing full well what could happen to him. He departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, he's talking to him, he's in the same room with him. Just think about that. In the room with this man who has people like him put to death, walks in, you know it's quiet because Saul still can't see anything. He hasn't eaten anything. He's probably just awestruck still. And so Ananias sneaks in the door. He's like, hey, man, can we talk for a second? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there's no mention of any hesitation from Ananias. He tried to reason with God, to tell God that he was crazy, but he counted the cost. Either I follow my heart and I disobey God and I'm safe, or I follow my God and I disobey my heart and I walk into potential death. Jesus is better. Y'all can hear that too, right? Okay. We'll just cut that out of the audio. Is that possible? I don't know. Either I follow my heart and I disobey God and I'm safe, or I follow my God and I disobey my heart and I walk into potential death, but Jesus <laughs> is better. I'd be safe over there. I might not lose my life over there, but over here I get Jesus. Ananias counted the cost to follow, and he went still. The Christian life is not one of ease. It is not one of paradise. It is not one of health and happiness. Not yet. One day in Jesus, every tear will be wiped from our faces. And there will be no more sadness, no more death, no more cancer, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more suicidal thoughts, no more darkness. But until that day, we do have all of this darkness, and we are called to be a light in it. So take every bit of darkness to your shepherd, and let him shine a light on it. And then go to those who struggle in the same way and tell them about this same light that you know. Whatever God has seen fit in his infinite wisdom to allow us to deal with could be for the redemption of another. Look at the cross. Jesus suffered for the sake of those who would believe. Jesus suffered for you and I. Could it be that our suffering is for the sake of someone else? It is, of course, better to depart but because this life sucks. But this life that sucks is not about us. It is about shining the light of Jesus into the darkness to magnify his glory and to show others the light that they might join us in it. Jeremiah 6, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. So we count the cost to follow and we go still. Third question, do you believe? Look at verse, the rest of verse 19. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The word proving there has this idea of joining two ideas together. Something that he never understood, he now understands. At first glance, it doesn't seem like much is going on here. But it's astronomical what happens in this text when Saul says he is the Son of God. And that he would go on preaching and proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Up to this point, Saul was having Christians murdered. For this exact same thing. Because they were saying that the Son of God was cursed and died. Saul has theological training in his background. He knows doctrine like the back of his hand. And so he knows passages like Deuteronomy 21, 23. He who hangs on a tree is under a curse from God. And all of these Christians are going around saying, he was murdered on a tree. You guys murdered him. You put him up on a tree. And so Saul, he's violently murderous against him. Because he's like, no, 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 no. Deuteronomy 21, God cannot be cursed. God cannot die. He knows that God is eternal. He knows that God cannot die or be under a curse, especially not his own curse, where he fails to be God. And so in his eyes, all of these men and women are preaching a message against God. And yet, by miraculous means, the resurrected Jesus comes to Saul himself 
in the middle of the day and says to Saul, I am Jesus. And all in a moment, everything Saul knows and loves gets thrown out the window. Saul knows that in order to be righteous before God, you have to follow the law. Otherwise, a curse is on you because God cannot look upon sin. But he also knows on some level that he nor anyone else ever has been able to do it perfectly. And so he doesn't truly know what's going to happen to him when he dies. He just hopes that maybe his good deeds outweigh his bad deeds and that he sacrificed enough bulls and goats and sheep and that he obeyed the Ten Commandments enough. Maybe he's thinking the only way that a sinner can know for sure that they will be saved in this life to come is if they could substitute their lives for a righteous one. And this man, the righteous man, would have to take on the sin on himself and give away his perfection. But some poor soul is not going to do that. Besides, there will never be a perfect man in order for the substitute to, for, to happen for humankind. So it's pointless to think this way, guys. The only way that this could happen would be if God himself came and lived as a man and gave up his life for us, but that's impossible. God cannot be cursed, and God cannot die. And surely there is a struggle mentally because of the problem of sin, because the curse of sin is death. God pronounced uh, from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, and he banished them from his presence out of the east gate of Eden. And so since we are all in Adam, we have inherited a body of sin. In the same way that Eden looks like me, uh, she didn't choose that. She looks like me because she's a part of me. Sin is like this in humanity. And even if it was not, we would still choose it. It is part of our nature. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Sexual immorality, lustful thoughts, deceit, murderous thoughts, selfishness, hypocrisy, anger, fits of rage, gluttony, the sin the seed of every sin lies in the fertile, wicked soil that is our hearts. When we were created to shine forth the glory of God, not sin. And so there is a rightful and just curse on all who do sin. From a God who cannot look upon sin because he is holy and just. Saul gets this. He knows that both of these are true. That's why he's trying so hard. But trying hard and doing better does nothing against the curse of sin. The curse of sin can only be removed by perfection, by holiness. And we ain't got it. This is the problem with self-help theology and do better, try harder sermons and theology. The, the problem cannot fix the problem. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. When was the last time you saw a dead person do anything? They don't do anything. They can't do anything. The curse of sin is like this. And so Saul has struggled with this. And he said, well, just to be on the safe side, I get these two truths that are hard to understand, but just to be on the safe side, let me do a bunch of stuff and try harder because I know that the curse is coming for me. Wrath is coming, and I want to be sure that God surely won't banish me to hell forever. Maybe he'll look at this list of deeds I have. And all of this changes in a moment with the words, I am Jesus. Because everything that Saul knows gets flipped right side up. It is impossible for God to be cursed or to die. And yet he did. And yet he was. The impossible happened in what Jesus did at the cross. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians in 3.13, says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. All in one moment. It makes sense to Saul now. The scriptures are true. Everyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. And so God did that for us. 
after this, Saul is rightfully shaken. He doesn't see, he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, he doesn't even speak for three days because now he has to deal with this truth that is laid before his eyes. When he said, when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, he meant that he had come to become a curse for everyone. 1 Peter 2 and Romans 6 say this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Tree that we might live to righteousness. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, the immutable, eternal, perfect, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, almighty God who spoke and Saturn appeared, took on human flesh and lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death wholly pleasing to God the Father, so that He might become that substitute that humanity desperately needed. Maybe we too need to spend time on our faces, on the ground, before this truth. Do you believe this? It is the most important question you will ever answer. Do you believe this? John the Baptist says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus has come to reverse the curse of death, and we cannot earn it. We cannot be enough. We cannot be worthy or do enough. It is only it is only a free gift, but the free gift is ours if we will believe. If we will trust in the finished work of Christ alone to save us, not our own work, not our own list of good deeds. If you believe, you will live though you die. And you will be raised and you will never die again. All because of the Son of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Do you believe? If you believe, believe again. And if you believe, believe even deeper. This is the truth. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ did the impossible. There was no way for a wicked man to step into heaven unless God himself became a curse for us. And he did it. And because of this gospel, we have verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Oh, that this would be us too. Oh, that more people would hear and believe. Oh, that heaven would be flooded with joy at the peace we have in this room with one another and the encouragement that we have and, and give to one another, the building up of each other. Oh, that we would walk in this faith believing and trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for our hope, our joy, and our life so that whatever does come, we are comforted knowing that we have him. And whatever comes, we are comforted knowing that we will have him forever in the life that is to come. Jeremiah 6 Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. It's right here. The way in your uh, translation is most likely capitalized because it's about Jesus. Stand by the roads, look and ask for the ancient past where the good way is. It's a person. It's Jesus. And you will find rest for your souls because he did the impossible. Do you know your shepherd's voice? Will you count the cost to follow 
and go still. Do you believe? We have seen the good way. Now let us walk in it. Let our lives reflect this bright shining sun as Owen. In order to see this even more clearly, uh, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together so that we get to hear from the mouth of Jesus that he laid down his body to be broken that ours might be safe, that his blood was shed that we might be covered in it before the Father. If you believe, you're welcome to the table to partake as part of the family. However, if you're in unrepentant sin or if you are an unbeliever, I ask that you would remain in your seat in this time. Not as an act of embarrassment, but because 1 Corinthians says those who eat and drink and partake in such a manner, <clears throat> such as unbelief or unrepentant sin, they would be eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Take your time here to examine your heart and life and see if any sin does remain uncovered and take it to your Father. Whatever struggle, whatever suffering, whatever pain, don't let it lead you to sin. Take it to your Father. If you're in unrepentant sin, turn from your sins to believe again. 1 Corinthians also says that we are saved, we are being saved, and we will one day be fully saved, and they are all focused on the same good news of Jesus that we have right here. How you turn from this sin is by believing again that there is no wrath left for you in Jesus and that the Father, by some miracle, does truly love you in Jesus. Where else will you go? Come back. Believe again. There's mercy waiting for you. If you have not yet trusted in Christ as your only way to salvation, there is no refuge for you on the day of judgment that is to come. If you remain in your current life of sin without Jesus' righteousness covering you, then you will be rightfully and justly punished for eternity in hell. There are no good deeds that outweigh that. But the offer of eternal life and salvation is being offered not by me, but by the risen Son through this passage this morning. It's no accident that you're here. It's no accident that we, on this day, are on, are, have been going through the book of Acts and are here this morning. Would you believe? Turn from whatever safety you have to the true and better safety in Jesus. And if you have any questions about this, Please find me after service. I, I want to help. But for all of us, here is our prayer in this time. Father, I confess my sins to you, that I am fallen short of your glory in my heart. And I am sorry. Would you give me strength and desire to know your voice? Would you help me to see you as my greatest treasure and that following you is far greater for me? And would you help me to believe? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your time to pray through what God has given you. And when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them, bring them back to your seats, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. It is impossible for man to spend eternity in heaven because we are sinful. And yet God himself did the impossible, became the impossible. That as we believe, we might be given as a free gift of grace and mercy that we do not deserve in the slightest eternal life with him. All because on the night when Jesus was betrayed and he took bread 
when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. And so, Father, we remember, we look to, and we see nothing less than Jesus' body and Jesus' blood shed and broken on our behalf, the impossible happening. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to trust wholly in that name in the finished work of of the Son of God who became a curse for us. God, though our our lives are, we have so many dark distractions and dark pieces of our life. Would you always allow us to see the light that you are shining into our hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ? We thank you because we are not worthy. We are not enough. We are not inherently beautiful. We are inherently rebellious and sinful toward you. And yet you save. God, would you let this truth sink deep into our hearts? Would you never let us see the word curse the same again? Would you never let us see the word tree the same again? Would you never let us hear the phrase, he is the son of God, the same again? Would you change us? Help us to grow in our faith in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.